This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Episode number 126 of the Show Before the Show podcast is the first episode of the postseason in the 2017 Minor League Baseball campaign, and uh, we're here to take you through it. Hi, everybody. I'm Tyler Maughan, Sam Dykstra in New York City. We'll get to hang out next week, Sam. I'm coming there. Yeah, no, that'll be a lot of fun. You haven't told people where you are right now, though. I'm currently sitting in a in a hotel. Uh, <laughs> <I'm> in... <laughs> not, not that minutia. Oh, not specifically. Not. I'm in a chair. Um, no, I am in Thunder Bay, Ontario. That's in Canada, people. Um, which is the site of the 2017 U18 Baseball World Cup from the World Baseball Softball Confederation, which is basically FIFA for baseball. It's kind of how I always explain it to people. Um, and, yeah, the uh, the 2017 U18 World Cup, I'm doing the broadcasts for WBSC, myself in the former voice of the Helena Brewers, Craig Durham, who is our other broadcaster here. Um, and we are in the middle of this tournament. We just finished the opening round yesterday second round which is called the super round here is tomorrow starting tomorrow usa baseball which is a roster of all these teams are 20 guys um it's basically 20 future major leaguers is how it stacks up right now for the u.s uh five and oh through opening round play they're the top seed coming out of their group going into the super round so it's a six team second round which will determine the two teams that'll play for the gold medal coming up on sunday uh the u.s has won three straight world championships in this event and their roster is loaded i mean guys who are more than likely going to be all of the top 10 high school draft selections or thereabouts next year uh, in the 2018 Major League Baseball first year player draft but Ethan Hankins the catcher Bryce Turing the shortstop Tristan Cassis the first baseman I mean just dudes after dudes after dudes and this is a fun fun team it's a fun competition and uh, and you can find the games you can watch them online uh, at YouTube and at Facebook and all that kind of stuff so if you want to get a jump on your fantasy drafts for post 2018 uh, Major League Baseball draft uh, then check us out it's pretty good yeah, and, and has there been anybody, you know, any of the big names that are there? Uh, you know, Lord knows we've talked to plenty of draft picks the last two, three years. Guys talking about how international competition kind of prepares them for the rigors of pro ball. But anybody standing out to you, particularly from the U.S. or any other team that you've seen so far? Yeah, I mean, this U.S. pitching staff right now is absurd. And we knew that this was really going to be a strength of the United States coming into this tournament. And, yeah, I mean, we've talked to guys on this show in uh, in episodes past in which, you know, Mickey Moniak was a member of this team two years ago when they won the World Championship in Osaka, Japan. They've beaten Japan for the gold in each of the last two uh, editions of this tournament but USA Baseball coming into the day today I'm pretty sure the USA Baseball team staff ERA is yeah just found the number 0.22 over five games they've given up two runs one of them has been earned in 41 innings pitched 
two runs that entire staff i mean everybody on that staff has been really impressive uh cole wilcox got a start he's thrown eight shutout innings so far did give up the one unearned run ryan weathers was really impressive you might remember his father david weathers who was a longtime major leaguer uh ryan weathers a high school prospect out of tennessee he's been really good Landon Marcel was one of the top starters for this U.S. team. He started against Japan, one inning, then a rain delay. Couldn't come back after a 90-minute rain delay, so Ryan Weathers took the ball and then went seven shutout innings behind him. But Matthew Libertor has been fantastic. Marceau was really good. He came on in relief later on in this tournament. Uh, Ethan Hankins in his start, six innings, 13 strikeouts in his first outing. So if you like pitching, this is certainly the uh, the place. And I've been really impressed with the, the catchers on this roster, too, Anthony Siegler and Will Banfield. Offensively, they haven't been tremendous so far, uh, but they've been really fun to watch behind the plate. Tristan Cassis is a fantastic power prospect, a name that you've probably heard. Nolan Gorman, third baseman, who won the high school home run derby ahead of the all-star game this year in Miami uh, a lot of fun talent on this team so you really can't go wrong it's going to be a whole lot of guys that you either hear about in the early picks in the draft next year or you hear about at high level d1 programs coming up very soon if you're a college baseball fan as well so um, keep an eye out and there's there's future stars internationally as well Japan's got a first baseman uh, who the media over there has dubbed the Japanese Babe Ruth he hit 109 home runs over the course of his high school career hit a monster shot yesterday there is a prospect for Italy who just signed with the Cincinnati Reds named Anthony Seminati who has, and I find this hard to believe, but I've now read multiple scouting reports that give him an 80 grade in raw power, which is like, that's Giancarlo Stanton, Aaron Judge, that type of freakish power. And he's Joey, hit Gallo. Two home run- Joey Gallo. Joey yeah. power, exactly. He's at two home runs in this competition that you would not believe. So um, there's a lot of really fun talent here, and it's pretty cool to see these guys early on and then a few years from now go, oh, yeah, I remember those guys doing X, Y, and Z in these international tournaments. So um, seek it out. WBSC, the, the YouTube and Facebook pages are, are where you can find these games. Games. Uh, we open playing the second round coming up on Thursday. Gold medal game is Sunday from Canada. Yeah, Sunday no, or- very cool. It's been, it's been a lot of fun to just follow you. I know yesterday uh, you called, what, three games? It was yeah. like eight and a half hours yeah. of yesterday, baseball. Yeah, uh, and solo. <laughs> Craig was over at our other – we're doing it at two ballparks. Craig was at the other one. I was supposed to have the, the morning game and the afternoon game. We also have a night game, but Japan and Korea have played early games because they're carried on live television back home. So 9 a.m. here, I believe, is 8 p.m. in Tokyo, I want to say. Um, so Japan's been playing a lot of these early games. So I had the morning game. And in the middle of the morning game, they told me, oh, by the way, we're picking up the Canada-Australia game tonight, which was a 6.30 first pitch, because that had big implications for who was going to come out of Group A. And a big crowd in the house since we're in Canada. And, uh, and yeah, so yesterday was from basically 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. I was calling baseball games solo for eight hours and 37 minutes. So if there's anybody out there who watched all three of those, I am so dearly sorry. <laughs> no, I'm happy. You happy. had to deal with that. That it's means terrible. that's a dedicated Tyler Mon fan, of which there are <laughs> which, several. It also sounds like my voice today, I think, also sounds like I smoked a, a like five packs of cigarettes before we got on for this show. So <laughs> that's probably it's probably a reason behind that I, as well. I just imagine you drinking like tea and honey 
All that, that is, I've of... literally done that like for the majority of the day today. I've had right. uh, whatever the Pico orange tea is what they have at this hotel and a bunch of honey. So uh, there you go. it's been fun. Um, but no, it's been awesome. And uh, and that leads us into this episode, which is our first postseason episode of the show before the show. Three strikes coming up here momentarily. Uh, you can find us, by the way, at iTunes, at Apple Podcasts, on Google Play, on the Stitcher app, and wherever else you get your podcasts, and also at MILB.com slash podcast. And there... Give us a rating and a review and a subscription on iTunes and Google Play, and uh, that helps us out and uh, helps you out. Feel good doing a good a good deed for somebody. So let's get started. Three strikes. 2017 has wrapped up at the regular season side. Playoffs beginning all across the minor leagues. We have uh, already some results from early playoff games and series. Uh, we did have one big news item, which is that uh, due to Hurricane Irma, the Florida State League has canceled its finals. So the Florida State League will award co-champions to its two semifinal winners. We'll talk about that a little bit. But Sam, with the 2017 regular season behind us, what stands out to you most? It seems like every year kind of has a thing that makes its identity for 2017. What are your biggest takeaways from this year? Um, yeah, I, I think kind of the way I'm going to remember this year is just the, uh, you're kind of the teenager, I think, um, in a way that, you know, every year there's somebody there's who's performing better than we could have expected at a level that they weren't supposed to be at for their age and that kind of thing. And it always astonishes us. And that's kind of what establishes what we consider to be, uh, you know, top level talent is guys who kind of exceed their competitive level. Um, but this year, it just seemed like there were so many teenagers who performed so well at, you know, places that, you know, we knew their, their skill level. We knew what they were. And I, I'm going to start out by talking about Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Um, him and Bo Bichette were kind of, I don't know who's Batman. I don't know who's Robin. It probably depended on <laughs> the day. But, uh, you know, the way those two guys performed, Bichette being 19, Guerrero being 18, they climbed to high A for the Florida State League. Almost did as well there. Guerrero actually did better in the Florida State League than uh, he did in the Midwest League at, with Lansing. And, you know, Guerrero just seemed so advanced beyond his years in terms of the way he, uh, you know, took pitches. Everybody likes to talk about his dad and how he it was a free swinger, but he had really good hand-eye coordination so he could make up for it. Uh, Vlad Jr. walked 76 times this year, struck out only 62. Um, that's incredible for any age. But for an 18-year-old to do that at two full season levels and is astonishing. So you got a lot of power, too. Right, yeah, he hit 13 home runs this year. Again, as an 18-year-old, like he should be a high school senior if he was uh, an American player. Um, and and Bichette, you know, one of my favorite things about Bichette was he when he left Class A Lansing, he was the Midwest League leader in average, which, like, duh, he was hitting 384 when he left. Um, and the way Rule 922A works for those of you who are not up to date on your uh, minor league stats rules. Um, 922A basically works out that if a player did not get enough at bats to qualify for a specific like slash category, so on base, slugging, average, you know, OPS, um, they're technically declared the leader in that category if they would still lead the league if they went O for the remaining at bats. So I think Bobichette needed 64 at bats to technically qualify for the Midwest League lead in batting average because he hit 384 he could go over 64 and still lead the league in average <laughs> that's insane like that's, that's just so insane and again 
this was a guy who is 19 years old. Uh, you know, was a second round pick last year, 66th overall pick. So 65 teams passed on before the Blue Jays took him. Um, just like the fact that both of those guys are in the same system is really cool. Um, but it's not just them. You know, Fernando Tatis Jr., another guy who was 18. He got the jump to double A San Antonio. Um, I don't know if we talked about that on the podcast or not, but that's kind of fun to think about. I think we actually did. Um, you know, he hit 281 with 21 homers and 29 steals at Class A Fort Wayne. Um He's another teenager, probably the the one who's the standout teenager. If we're not talking about Guerrero Bichette, is Ronald Acuna, uh, Acuna, excuse me. He's number seven overall right now. I think he's definitely going to be in the conversation for top overall prospect. Another guy who just got better uh, at every single level he played this year. He finished his slash line at AAA Gwinnett. Again, only 19 years old. This guy was born in 1997. Uh, his slash line at AAA Gwinnett was 344. 393, 548 with nine homers and 11 steals. This is a guy who started in, at the Class A advanced level at Florida Pretty State good. League where he hit only 287. Um, so he continued to get better everywhere he went. He might still end up you know, with the Braves this month. There's been a lot of chatter going on with that. Uh, he's definitely going to be heading to the Arizona Fall League. So those, those are just four teenagers, but I feel like they just so dominated the conversation in 2017 that I think that's the way we're going to kind of remember it. And I and there are, you know, plenty of others. Colby Allard and Mike Soroka, uh, also, you know, teenagers this year, for most of the year anyway, who got pushed to Double A Mississippi, had solid seasons there. Uh, we can keep going on and on. And I, I will be really interested to see going forward if this affects, you know, the way teams look at prospects. If they're more willing to push them and and get them aggressive assignments, if they are that talented, even when they are that young as teenagers, or if this is just a special bet group of pl- players. I mean, a couple of years ago, we talked about the year of the prospect and how we thought maybe that'll have implications down the line and guys or guys getting pushed to the majors quicker than we previously thought, just because they we've seen uh, you know them dominate the major league level like they did, and I think that was 2015. Uh, not quite. Yeah, the years following, it's kind of gone back to life as normal when it comes to that. So uh, I don't know if this is just one group of, of guys who are exceptionally talented. We know they're exceptionally talented. Does that say something about the game currently or just them? We'll have to wait years before we kind of see that take uh, hold. But, yeah, th- this group was kind of special when it came to you know, 17, 18, 19-year-olds in 2017. Not only a lot of young guys, but also, as we talked about a couple of months ago, you look at the top 100 prospects in all of minor league baseball, according to MLB Pipeline, not a single pitcher ranks in the top 100. So if you are in the top 10, rather, of the top 100. So if you are a prospect fan on the position player side, that top 10 is loaded for you. Michael Kopech of the Chicago White Sox is number 11, and he is the highest-ranked pitching prospect in the top 100 coming toward the end of the 2017 season. Uh, strike two this week, Sam. Postseasons are here. They are underway. Like we noted, Florida State League, uh, a big wrench thrown into that. And uh, we, we obviously, all of our thoughts are with the people on the Atlantic Coast uh, who will be impacted by Hurricane Irma. Uh, but for the postseason in 2017, there's a lot of storylines from uh, all over the minor league landscape. What stands out to you about the 2017 playoff race that has now culminated in all these series? Yeah, and, and one news that's kind of breaking as, as we're talking about this, um, I believe the Southern League, is also canceled its finals. Um, so it, it, you know, Hurricane Irma, um, you know, is, is really, you know, we're thinking about everybody in the Caribbean right now, not just, you know, affected 
games wise, but in ter- terms of Puerto Rico, the U.S. Virgin Islands, everybody in Florida. I know the Gulf Coast League. You know they moved up game three of their finals today, uh, Wednesday when we're recording this to 10 a.m. because they wanted to get their players out. So um, you know there more might be more news breaking in terms of games being moved or canceled all all entirely, what have you. So keep an eye out for that. Um, but the the one group I had kind of had circled um, as particularly exciting for me is out on the West Coast in the Pacific Coast League. Um, just in terms of st- team storylines, I know we usually t- usually tend toward prospect storylines or player storylines, that kind of thing. Uh, but the the PCL is just kind of stacked with pl- uh, team storylines. You have the defending PCL champs in the El Paso Chihuahuas. Uh, they've now won the, their division three times in a row. And not only that, they're getting kind of a ringer, I feel like. I understand it, but it, it he just feels like a ringer. Hunter Renfro, who was the PCL MVP last year, he's back with El Paso. Didn't have quite, excuse me, didn't have quite the year uh, the Padres were kind of hoping for out of him. And so they sent him back uh, to El Paso at the end of August. Since he's been in El Paso in, in the PCL as of right now, he's 28 for 55 with four homers in 14 games. That's a 509 average. Uh, over 14 games he's been the pcl player of the week each of the last two weeks um so it, it must feel like getting up back on a bike for him just dominating the pcl like he's back he knows what he's doing he can handle this i'm sure it's getting his confidence back up padres aren't really going anywhere this september they'd rather see him you know continue to crush the ball come back second half of the month uh continue so chihuahua's kind of going after a repeat title in that league um, the fact that they have their best slugger from a year ago back and equally as hot is kind of fun and exciting. Uh, but Colorado Springs, I think they won their first division title in 20 years, um, which is fascinating. That team it was once really loaded with prospects. Uh, Lewis Brinson, uh, you know, Brett Phillips, um, you know, Josh Hader was on that team at the beginning of the year. Mauricio Dubon is still there. Brandon, um, Woodruff, but was there. Brandon Woodruff was there. Yeah, the Brewers actually need help now, so they're calling up all these big names that help get the Sky Sox to where they are now. Um, but that would be really interesting to see them uh, kind of carry it off. And also, you know, the other two teams also have their own really impressive prospects. Uh, Reno has Christian Walker, probably the best hitter in the PCL this year, um, was right involved in that Joe Bauman home run award to the very end until A.J. Reed ended up taking it. Uh, on the Memphis side, Tyler O'Neill, who was involved in that trade for Marco Gonzalez, straight up from the Mariners. He's moved to the the Memphis Redbirds Cardinals are kind of in a similar position to the Brewers. They're uh, they're both chasing, you know, that wild card spot. It's kind of all hands on deck. Uh, so some of the big names, you know, in that Cardinal system that might otherwise have been with Memphis. I'm thinking about like Harrison Bader. Uh, Jack Flaherty is now up. Um, you know, Carson Kelly, you could even make an argument should maybe be still with Memphis. Uh, those guys are up, but Tyler O'Neill is there. Magnuris Sierra is there. So you've got a little bit of power, a little bit of speed in that outfield. Um, no matter what PCL team, I think there's something to be excited about. There's only four that make it. So it's the semifinals and the finals. And then, you know, whoever wins plays in the triple A national championship game in Scranton, Wilkes-Barre. Um, so yeah, I, I think you can't go wrong with trying to follow either one of those two series, uh, you know, coming up in the PCL playoffs. 
postseason time, one of the most entertaining times across the minor league baseball landscape, and uh, this year, sure to be no different, but yeah, it is official. The Southern League will cancel its championship series as well, so the FSL and the Southern League uh, with the playoff plan thrown off track due to Hurricane Irma, but that uh, was officially announced just a little bit ago by the AA Southern League. Um, the month of September, Sam, for Strike 3 is strange for playoff races, and just what you noted about Colorado Springs, for example, uh, major league teams that are still in the hunt sometimes will have to raid those minor league rosters for guys who can contribute in September which leaves the minor league teams looking a little bit different as they head into the postseason. But that's the point of all of this is to graduate those guys to the big leagues and have them making impacts, whether it's in a postseason race now or getting some experience to hopefully do that down the road in their careers. We've seen a bunch of guys promoted uh, for the start of September when rosters expanded on September 1st. Who stands out to you right now as the most notable debut this month? Yeah, let me just rattle off some of the names that I, I think got called up in, in not surprising ways, but uh, we're definitely on that fence of like, well, we'll see. You know, it would make sense if they do get called up, don't get called up, whatever. These are guys who have officially been called up to the majors this this month um, that we're right about on that fence. So J.P. Crawford, who I'm actually going to talk about here in a little bit, uh, Luis Gohara with the Braves. Austin Hayes with the Orioles, that was a little bit surprising um, just because he started the year at Class A Advanced Frederick, uh, split his time between Frederick and Bowie, and then the Orioles decided to push him. Um, best hitter in that in in that system. Um, so why the heck not bring him up? Um, but he was a third-round pick last year. That, that's an awfully aggressive assignment for him, but he certainly earned it. Alex Verdugo moves up to the Dodgers. Jack Clarity, who I mentioned now with the Cardinals. Chan Sisko, another Orioles prospect. Uh, gets moved up to the Orioles, catcher of the future. Don't know how much playing time he's actually going to get. Wellington Castillo is kind of setting the the world on fire as a Orioles catcher. He he's only on a one year deal, so Cisco remains kind of the backstop of the future, but he'll get that time now. And Francisco Mejia, who as we discussed, will move to third base in the Arizona Fall League. Uh, got a little bit of third base time with Akron, um, but you know is now up with the Indians as a catcher. Uh, we'll be fascinated with him. But uh, the, the one that's most intriguing to me is, I think, Crawford, um, just because the way his season began, uh, this did not seem like a possibility. Uh, you know, we knew him to be one of the best prospect, prospects in the game, really, to begin the year. That's what everybody thought. He had some struggles last year at Triple A Lehigh Valley. But, you know, the pieces were still there. He's a guy who's going to take his walks. He's a magnificent defensive shortstop. Um, so, uh, yeah, everything was there to kind of be a very good player at the major league level. And then he just was not a very good hit, hitter over the first half. Um, going into June 20th, and I, I and I bring up June 20th because that was the day he came back from the DL. He uh, had a disabled stint with a groin injury. So before he came back from that DL stint, he was batting 194 with a 313 on-base percentage and a 252 slugging with just two homers in his first 56 games with the Iron Pigs. Uh, since coming back from the DL, you know, we talked about how he got hot in July and how he got hot in August. So this is even including a little bit of before he got super hot. But since coming back from that uh, DL stint on June 20th, he hit 280 with a 380 on base percentage. And this is what it really gets me, was a 522 slugging and 13 homers in 71 games. Power's never really been a huge thing for him. You look at him, you can see why he's not, you know, a big, rough guy. That's what makes him good at, 
at shortstop. He's certainly agile. He's certainly, uh, you know, he's not very big for the position, all that kind of stuff. But uh, he certainly turned on the power in the second half for the Iron Pigs. And, and because of that, I, I would definitely say he earned this promotion. They moved him around a little bit. He, he got his first major league start the other night at third base. Uh, he got some time, I think, with the Iron Pigs at second base. Um, you know, the Phillies kind of have a tacked on shortstop right now, but that's his future position. He's too good of a defender to not play shortstop. Um, but it's, it's just telling to me because which is the real JP Crawford? You know, you talk to him, he just said, well, this is me. You know, this is who I've always been. Um, you know, I, a lot of people were hating on me in the beginning of the year. Uh, and I use that as fuel to get better and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't sound like he really tried to change that much. Um, but he took off in the second half in a way that we always thought he was capable of before his struggles. Um, so now what does he do with this major league assignment? He's basically, this is an audition. You know, he, he is playing for one month uh, to be the, the Phillies starting shortstop next year. Um, what is he going to do with it? Is he going to be able to carry that offense with him? And, you know, the Phillies, I think they really want to be a competing club next year. You know, Reese Hoskins is now up there. Jorge Alfaro is, is now up there. Uh, you know, Scott Kingery's not very far behind. Um, you know, they have some of the, their other big prospects are probably years away in Sixto Sanchez and Mickey Moniak. So they can't really afford to say like, oh, we'll just wait it out one more year. Uh, everybody's knocking on the door now. So, you know, they want Crawford to, to not exactly do what Reese Hoskins has done. That's been historic, but at least be as successful. Um, and you know, this w- next month is going to be very telling and what I think the Phillies are going to try to do this off season in terms of how ready they think they are to compete and how they kind of prepare for you know 2018, 2019 uh, with some of the moves they make. So I'll be keeping an eye on that one. It's not going to be affecting major league postseason and that kind of thing, making some of the impact, some of those other names I said before. But that'll be very telling for a team that has kind of been waiting for the rebuild to kind of pop off. And I think with Crawford, that that's your sign that it's kind of completing itself. One guy who will be, guy we talked about all year, is more than likely at some point being a call-up candidate is Walker Bueller of the Los Angeles Dodgers, who just announced he will wear number 64 in the major league. So that's official news, as Walker Bueller will try to push a, uh, a historic run from the Los Angeles Dodgers through the postseason. Uh, one foul ball this week, Sam. We had a big waiver trade deadline deal uh, a lot of action at the waiver trade deadline this year which was really interesting but Justin Verlander moving to the Houston Astros in exchange for three prospects right-hander Franklin Perez outfielder Daz Cameron and catcher Jake Rogers then with the Astros ranked number three number nine and number 11 respectively since moving over to the Tigers Perez is now the top ranked prospect in that system Daz Cameron is number six and Jake Rogers is number eight give us your take on this deal obviously the Astros making that push for a World Series you're gonna have to deal away a lot of talent in order to get somebody like Verlander but this is a pretty good package for the Tigers and a system that uh, has been down but gets an infusion of life with this deal yeah, and I mean, I already liked the the Tigers pitching. I think that was certainly what was kind of dragging the system up. Um, and by adding Perez, you know, I was talking before about young teenage teenagers performing really well. Perez is only 19, and he was with Double A Corpus Christi at the time of the deal, and certainly handling his own there with a 3.09 ERA in 32 innings. Um, he becomes their top prospect. He's got you know two above average pitch or three above average pitches in his fastball curveball and changeup. Uh, he's got some pretty good control as well. Lots, lots to like with him. Uh, the thing I, I find really interesting is Daz Cameron. Um, you know, he was kind of tied in the same way. Bobachette is tied to Vlad Guerrero jr. 
Uh, Daz Cameron was kind of tied to Kyle Tucker when they were both drafted in the first round of 2015. Um, Cameron, you know, everybody talked about how he was asking for a, a big signing bonus, and it, he got one at, with a four million dollar bonus as a as the 37th overall pick. And the Astros were able to kind of play the system and make that work and all that kind of stuff. But he really struggled uh, his first two full seasons, or you know, this being his second full season. Uh, the first half of the season, it looked like he was struggling again. Last year, he was actually sent down uh, to short season ball. This year, beginning at Quad Cities, uh, before the All-Star break, he hit just 206 with the 661 OPS. And in the second half, it looked like things were finally clicking. Uh, he was batting 332 with a 958 OPS. Um, he's got some some good power for his age. 14 homers this year at Class A uh, between Quad Cities and West Michigan. Tons of speed, 32 steals. Uh, is a capable uh, you know, outfielder wherever he's going to play, whether that's in center field, one of the corners, certainly be able to handle that because of that speed. Uh, so he went from a guy I think a lot of people were down on to all of a sudden the number two trade chip for a you know former Cy Young winner, and former MVP. So uh, how he kind of continues to build himself will be interesting. But yeah, between getting him, Rodgers, and I think Perez, who is now the, you know, the crown jewel of that rebuilding tiger system uh this is definitely a better group of prospects than it was you know just a couple months ago so that'll do it for three strikes on this week's edition of the show before the show podcast coming up we're gonna keep it uh at milb.com centric this week and hear from andrew batterferano who is one of our terrific writers on the site a story that he put together on jake deekman who was a member of the texas rangers minor league system this year on his way back to the big leagues he has since reascended to that role and some stuff off the field that kept jake off the field over the last year or so uh in his baseball career really cool story and andrew joins us to talk about it coming up next We're keeping it in the MILB.com family here on this week's edition of the Show Before the Show podcast, episode number 126. And Andrew Batafrano joins us to talk about a really, really good piece he had up on the site this week. Welcome, man. Your maiden voyage on the podcast. How are you? Uh, it's good to be here. Yeah, it's first time I've been on here. Longtime listener, I guess, first time caller. And, you know, excited to <laughs> discuss the story with you guys. And one of our rare guests that we actually also get on Skype. So this audio quality is fantastic. It's great. Yeah, I'm used to doing this. So uh, we, I, I do my own podcast on the side, and we do Skype. So this is, uh, you know, pretty uh, pretty normal. We're cooking with gas here. Well, let's talk about this story. Um, Andrew wrote a piece on Jake Diekman, who is a uh, back in the minor league system in the Texas Rangers organization. I don't want to call him a former big leaguer because he's working his way back to the major leagues for the Rangers, a former prospect in draft selection of the Philadelphia Phillies. Um, Jake's story would be interesting enough if it was just that he was from a town of just under 1,500 people in south-central Nebraska, and he was a 30th-round draft pick, and he had made the major leagues. But Jake has overcome over the last calendar year and dating back even to his childhood a whole lot more than that. Set up this story for us Andrew and and how you came across it and and putting this piece together so for me I uh I was actually in the hospital this was in the end of May so it was actually when I just first started Milb so it was pretty crazy and I after surgery that I had I was kind of perusing social media on my phone and I you know stumbled upon Jake and I, I knew that he had gone through a lot over the last couple months with his own surgeries and his battle with ulcerative colitis but when it like hit me, it's like, huh, one of the surgeries that he had 
uh, is very similar to what I just went through. So I kind of reached out through him on Twitter. We had a, a short conversation and, you know, months kind of went along and he finally made his first rehab appearance with Frisco a couple weeks ago in August. And our, one of our editors at uh, Milb reached out to me on one of my days off and she's like, Hey, why don't you, uh, write a feature about, uh, Jake Diekman? I'm like, I didn't think about it, but that'd be a really cool idea. And finally, uh, came through and it talked with him, his fiance Amanda, who was great, and uh, people at the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. So, you know, it really just kind of evolved into this whole thing. And, um, yeah, what was that conversation like with him? I mean, I, I imagine it's different where, you know, if Tyler or I were talking to him and, and talking about UC and stuff like that, we would need him to explain what it is. Were you guys able to have like a conversation beyond just, so what are your symptoms and how did you discover this? I mean, how, how are you able to kind of touch with touch base with him in a way you're not normally used to, you know, speaking to athletes who are throwing 95 miles an hour, yeah. can hit a ball 400 feet? Yeah, it definitely made it a more personal connection where we were able to, you know, kind of talk about the symptoms a little bit more in depth because, you know, we've kind of gone through a lot of the same stuff, even though he is a little bit older than I am. So, yeah, like you said, you know, normally these guys like that, you know, they're throwing, like you said, like throwing 95 miles an hour or whatever. And it's kind of hard to be on that same level. But, you know, to have someone that's gone through just, you know, very similar situations, it, you know, it made it a lot easier. And uh, we were talking about just, you know, the different medications that we've been on and like what worked and what didn't. And, uh, you know, just kind of the whole process of recovering from this surgeries that, uh, you know, he's been through and the one that I went through earlier this year. And uh, he was just, you know, telling me about like the first meal that he had after the first surgery. It was just a couple of bites of mashed potatoes, but it felt awesome. Like I can totally relate. The first solid meal I had after surgery was like a piece of French toast that the hospital gave me. And I thought it was the greatest thing of all time. And I had it the same thing like the day I left the hospital. And I'm like, God, this is awful. How did I enjoy this so much? But it's just, you know, it's the the first thing that you eat. Anything is going to taste good. So, uh, you know, we kind of related in that sense. Andrew, for those people who are not aware, um, explain ulcerative colitis to us. Uh, it's somewhat similar to Crohn's disease, which yeah. more people have heard of, but kind of give us the background and how you guys both came across it. You explained in the story how Jake really experienced symptoms dating back to when he was in elementary school, and yeah. I think there was probably some crossover in how you experienced things and Jake did growing up, but give us that background. Yeah, for sure. I guess the the main difference between Crohn's and colitis is Crohn's can really affect anywhere throughout the GI tract usually in the small intestines, but really can be anywhere from, you know, your, your esophagus all the way down. Um, colitis is mostly focused in your colon. That's pretty much just where it's centered, but the symptoms end up being, you know, very, very similar. And it's obviously bathroom focused. So, you know, just, it's, it's a little bit embarrassing, but, you know, growing up with it, I was 12 when I was diagnosed. So I was in seventh grade and, uh, you know, it was definitely difficult at first. Cause I mean, you, you just got to get like comfortable with what it is. And it's obviously something that's really uncomfortable. And at 12 and, years old, that's already the yeah. most difficult time of growing up anyway. Right. Middle of seventh grade, you know, and this is when like honors classes were starting. So it was definitely, you know, a stressful time in my life and he was a little bit younger. And what's interesting, I was pretty fam- familiar with Crohn's and colitis by the time I had it because my brother also has it. And he found out when, um, he was about seven or eight. He was really young. He was in, I think, second or third grade. And so I had been, you know, kind of familiar with the whole process. And uh, by the time I started getting sick, my family and I kind of knew that I had it. But for him, it was a little different because he, I don't think he had anyone in his family that, you know, had kind of gone through it. So it was uh, definitely a new situation for him. 
but uh, like like I wrote in the story, he didn't really experience his probably his worst symptoms until uh, he got to pro ball. Although when he was younger, when he was first diagnosed, that's uh, when he was first experiencing it all. And um, just kind of talk about what, what the recovery process was like for him, you know, compared to to what you went through mm-hmm. in terms of you know he's trying to come come back and and make it to the majors, and I, I think he is there now yes. uh, with the Rangers, but. Um, you know, he's trying to get back to becoming a pro athlete, not just trying to live, but trying to compete on a you know ultra competitive level. Um, what was that recovery process and then rehab process like for him? That was interesting because that was one of the, the first questions I asked him, like, you know, how different was this recovery process compared to, say, if you had, you know, Tommy John or a knee injury or, you know, something that you, you got hurt during a game or something like that. And he said, you know, Obviously, it was different, you know, going through the surgeries that uh, a lot of people are, you know, never have done this in baseball. But once he got back on the field and was throwing again, the the rehab process was the same. He just said, you know, once I was able to throw again, it was the same uh, that if I had, you know, Tommy John or, you know, say that knee injury where, you know, it was just, you know, throwing to batters and kind of progressing off of, you know, throwing bullpens and then eventually getting into the games, which he did in Frisco in a little bit. Uh, Round Rock, and now, like you said, he's back with the Rangers. He made his uh, debut uh, the first day in September when they expanded the rosters, and he was super pumped about getting into the game. He wasn't sure at first if uh, that day he was going to be even active, but he, he was, and uh, he was really thrilled about it. Jake went one scoreless inning that day, one scoreless inning the next day against the Angels, and that culmination of all of the work to get back is impressive enough in itself, even more so based on the fact that there's a quote from Jake in the story where he said he really has been told that it could take up for a, up to a year for him to feel mm-hmm. like everything inside of him is working as it's supposed to. So this hopefully continues to get better for him, but it also puts into perspective just how lengthy of a, a rehab process from the surgeries and from everything that goes into that really is for something like this. Yeah, for sure. And when I was talking to him and Amanda, I talked to them uh, Thursday. So it was right before the, he got called up to the bigs. And when they were talking about the story, it was, you know, at first it was like, all right, we'll have to rehab. And then when they were kind of thinking about it, it's like, huh, am I ever going to pitch again? So there was always that kind of doubt in his mind that, you know, if something goes wrong or, you know, he doesn't feel the same after surgery, that, uh, you know, this could, you know, be the end. But once he comes back and he throws, you know, a couple scoreless outings uh, in the minors and then comes up and now, you know, he had the two scoreless outings early on, he's, uh, you know, he's thrilled and it's uh, it's gone well for him so far. So, so far, so good. One of the other things that's really neat in this story is the impact that Jake has uh, decided to try to make on other people suffering from the same things that he suffered from and he tells a story of a, a kid who showed up to globe life globe life park um mm-hmm. that he had you know really started to devour and to form kind of a friendship with and he went with that young boy to his field day at school and all yeah. the kids there were supportive they wanted to ask jake questions they wanted to know what it was like and all this kind of stuff and that's big especially because young people who realize that this is something that they're going to have to live with for their entire lives it's kind of one of the things you noted it's not easy in a whole lot of different ways other than just the physical aspects. So to be able to have an impact on that, uh, he established the Gutted Out Foundation. What is now kind of the full scope now that it seems like Jake is back on track where he wants to be professionally, now he can focus on that type of stuff as well. Yeah, so he and Amanda are running that Gutted Out Foundation. It started a couple of years ago where they were selling the shirts that say Gutted Out. And over the last couple of years, and now this past August, it evolved into this foundation where 
you know, they're raising money for either, you know, research or like he said in that quote, uh, to send kids to camp. It's really kind of focused on, you know, whatever is going to make people's lives easier that are suffering from this. And, uh, you know, so far they said they're working with the Players Philanthropy Fund with this. And uh, so far they said so good that it's, you know, working out well. And, you know, they really want to spread awareness with it all. And, you know, the, the story with the kid uh, at Globe Life Park, I thought that was so great. How, you know, this child, he had never shown his ostomy bag to anyone. You know, it's definitely something that's super uncomfortable. And he meets Jake. And the, the first thing he asks him is like, hey, we, we're going to take a picture. Do you want to show it? And he's like, yeah, like, no problem. And now it's, you know, all over Instagram and Twitter. And uh, it, it's great to see that his classmates were so supportive of it. Because, you know, like we're just saying, it's definitely uncomfortable to live with. And especially uh, for other kids that don't know about it, it's definitely, you know, it's you know, it's a weird thing. And to, you know, to see everyone kind of rally around him, it was really a, a neat story. Yeah, that was actually going to kind of get to what I was going to ask about in terms of, you know, through your own personal story, through Deekman's story, through this gutted out, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, even going back to what you were saying with your brother, um, do you feel like there, there's a more of a conversation going on? There's more education out there for something like this. It's not just kind of, you know, a disease or whatever you want to call it that it operates in the shadows, that there's more discussion going on uh, than there ever has been? Oh, for sure. Uh, you know, that was one of the big questions I asked the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation because they had worked with Jake this year and, you know, past years at different events. And I asked them about, you know, have you guys seen, you know, personally more traction with, uh, you know, social media and just people, you know, talking about it in general? And they were like, oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, it's definitely more uh, you know, discussed, you know, whether it's online or offline. And, you know, I, I've in my experience, I felt totally the same way. Uh, when I was younger, it was kind of this thing that, you know, it was there. And I was definitely uncomfortable talking about it with, you know, my friends, classmates, teachers, whatever. And now it just seems that it, it's really big on uh, social media. And a lot of the comments so far, people are just, you know, really happy about uh, that it's being discussed and it's uh, it's out there and Jake is he's really uh, he's run with this and it's been something that he's obviously been open with he's, he posts something on Instagram or Twitter it seems like every day about it and uh, people are really really thrilled about it that you know he's been so transparent through the whole process. And if you want uh, a little bit more on this story from Andrew's perspective, Andrew also wrote a blog post about his own personal experience that you can find on his Twitter account, which is at Andrew at Bat, B-A-T-T, is the uh, end of that handle. And uh, Andrew, this is such a great story, man. I'm so glad that it got such good traction among people because it's a, a story that really deserves to be told, and you did a, a heck of a good job telling it. And thanks for coming on to talk about it with us, man. This has been great. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And I was uh, you know, grateful that uh... – we were able to run it on our site. I didn't think it would be something that would ever be possible. And, uh, you know, to tell his story and kind of share my experience with it. It was, uh, you know, something that was really cool and, uh, unexpected. It's awesome. And it's a great story. Go find it at MILB.com. Andrew, thanks, man. We'll do it again. I'm sure over the off season at some point. Yeah. Would, uh, love to be back. And, uh, you know, you guys do a great job with the show and I'll definitely be listening, uh, when you guys post every week. the regular season behind us postseason promotion something that we kind of discussed last week there aren't really a whole lot of them so we're going to wrap up some regular season content with benjamin hill your friend and mine from milb.com hi ben are you excited to see me next week i'm i didn't know i was going to see you next week tyler <laughs> that's uh, some kind of wonderful <laughs> 
and now we're not going to hang out. I'm just kidding, Ben. So <laughs> the uh, well, so we're going to start things in Charleston. The Charleston River Dogs had a really cool story about Stevie Wince, who is a 14-year-old bat boy for the Charleston River Dogs. Being a bat boy, not an easy gig. Uh, tell us about Stevie Wince with Charleston. Dude dances, and he's energetic, and he seems like a fun little ballpark character over there in Charleston. Yeah. Um, so as you can see, the season's over, but I'm still writing about my in-season road trips, uh, really winding down in terms of the MILB.com features. The uh, the blog will go on a little longer. But today, um, in which I'm speaking to this much, that today is uh, Wednesday. Um, we had a story appear about Stevie Wentz and um, – you know, just a simple little story. I just t- did a quick interview with him and got something up on the site. I uh, hadn't written about a Bat Boy this year. But uh, Stevie uh, became known this season for dancing um, in between innings or during rain delays. And uh, his dances were really funny because uh, they weren't choreographed. So they were very interpretive and kind of strange. And uh, when I was there, Charleston, a couple in action and uh, ended up talking to him after the game because, like, why not? I wanted to see how he became uh, – you know, such a good sir and, uh, you know, his path to being a bat boy. And he's a funny dude because, you know, when you're dancing all the time and you have a reputation for that kind of zaniness, you'd expect maybe to be kind of a zany personality, but he was so, uh, serious and sincere throughout the interview. And, uh, you know, the quote that I lead off the story with is, uh, if, if it's, when I hear a funky beat, I just got to get down. But he doesn't say it with a, a wink and a nod. He says it so seriously, like this is his mission in life. So I was like, oh, I'm going to write about you, kid. <laughs> and uh, I did. So check it out on MILB.com. Stevie Wentz, the 14-year-old dancing bat boy with the Charleston River Dogs. And the River Dogs are in the playoffs. So uh, He gets some extra work. There might be still yeah, still a few opportunities to see Stevie in action. You know, school started. It's got to be difficult to balance uh, eighth grade and uh, postseason baseball. But I would hope that Stevie's up to the task or I hope uh, you know he's able to do that. But, uh, yeah, the season is still going on. We're in a very strange time. It's like the twilight zone. The season's ended. There's uh, some playoffs. I'm still writing about in-season stuff. It's all very strange and surreal, but we're going to get through this together. And how exactly do they find Stevie? I mean, how, what what exactly do they do? What do you? How do you find a bat boy exactly? Is it just, like, who you think is going to fit in the position? Is it kind of just handed to friends of friends? Uh, how does that whole thing work? Well, I'm not sure there's an industry standard. Um in Charleston, you know, Stevie told me that he knew through whatever channels he knew one of the front office members there who put in a good word for him, and he got hired. And it was as simple as that. I do think with Bat Boys, you do find a lot of, if not friends of a friend, but uh, you know, if you know someone with the team or you're kind of familiar with the organization, then you can get in that way. But you know, it's there's a lot of game day staff to hire, and uh, Bat Boy is just one of those. And what a cool job! And, you know, when I was a kid, you know, I was a huge Phillies fan, and I would fantasize about being a Phillies Bat Boy as if it was the coolest thing in the world. It never even occurred to me that you know you could get that job in the minor leagues as well, and probably have a lot better uh, chance of doing it. So if I could go back and be a Bat Boy uh, for sure, and I'd expand my horizons, just be on the Phillies and be a Bat Boy for whoever. So if I ever go back in time, uh, check it out. I'm going to be Wait, a Bat if you Boy go in the back minor in leagues. Time, that's going to be your choice to be a Bat Boy in the minor leagues. Yeah, of in all one of the timelines. Things. No, in all timelines, <laughs> in every single timeline. I'm just a bat boy. That's all I want to do. I can't Literally think of anything else I'd really rather change do. Change about the past. He would get some bat boy experience on his resume. Okay. Yeah, and like I'd kill Hitler <laughs> too. We'd have the baby. No, Hitler I, uh, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's something we'll say for January podcast. How about that? Well, Ben, we last week teased and this week got a chance to finally read the uh, kind of the origin story of one of the weirdest mascots in minor league baseball. The Wilmington Blue Rocks call a, uh, a humanized celery 
stalk a mascot, which I say anthropomorphic. Celery stalk, which city of Wilmington has no real ties to celery. The name Blue Rocks has no ties to celery. But Mr. Celery has become legendary. He's now uh, a couple of alternate logos for the Blue Rocks or Mr. Celery. And you got a chance to tell the background of Mr. Celery, which is like this story will serve one day, I would imagine, as the first in an installment of superhero movies about Mr. Celery. But give us his give us this origin story, this coming out party for Mr. Celery as he's 17. 18 years old yeah i mean this is one of the funner stories year most fun i don't know funner if funner is, is what we're gonna go with it um, funner is a word people all right all right <laughs> tyler recently had the debate so there <laughs> we go um yeah you know so way, way back at the very end of july when i was in uh in wilmington as i think i mentioned last week um on the podcast uh it was a celebration the night i was there and so throughout the evening, I interviewed uh, longtime front office members and some ushers about Mr. Celery, uh, their reaction to Mr. Celery, their memories of Mr. Celery, uh, the origin story, of course. And I've never really written an MILB.com article uh, like this um, in which I did it kind of oral history style because I had like eight or nine people quoted, different people quoted. So instead of just endless quotes, you know, he said, said this person, said this person, uh, put it together oral history style, allowed the mystery to sort of deepen that way by people's conflicting accounts. Uh, so Mr. Celery's origin story, uh, to the extent that anyone can really remember it, is at some point in the 90s, uh, the team's concessionaire was center plate. And, um, they brought a bunch of different food-related costumes down to the ballpark uh, for some promotion they were involved with. And um, one of them was a celery costume. Who knows why or really what it was involved with, but it just got thrown in a storage closet. Then fast forward a few years, and the uh, team's general manager at the time, uh, Chris Kemple, he went to Lake Elsinore and saw the storm. And at that time, they had a uh, – you know, probably for copyright reasons, it wasn't actually the Energizer Bunny, but uh, the Lake Elsinore Storm had a pink bunny uh, on the field. Chris Kemple, the Blue Rocks GM, said, "You know what? That would be kind of cool if we had our own mascot who only appeared uh, when it score when we score." And somehow, that and the fact that they had a celery costume in the closet just became this thing where they did it as a one-off, and then it was a two-forward to it. And it seems like a key point in the story was that shortly after Mr. Celery premiered. At the ballpark, a group of uh, University of Delaware college students called themselves the Celery Squad and came to every game with celery stalks and, po and pots and pans and kind of turned them into a cult hero. And uh, so that was in the early 2000s. And now you go to a Blue Rocks game, and like you said, Tyler, there's very little – there's nothing connecting Wilmington – uh, the city or Blue Rock specifically to Celery, but Mr. Celery is a huge part of their branding and overall identity. And so my story, uh, to the extent I can, seeks to get to the bottom of that. So check it out on the website, MILB.com, the official website of Minor League Baseball. One thing you kind of get into is just like how they've kind of embraced it and how does the kind of region embraced it, Mr. Celery? Well, I mean, he's huge. I mean, it's it really is that when you go to a Blue Rocks game, you just expect to see Mr. Celery. And um, when you if you talk to someone who's been to a Blue Rocks game, next time you have a conversation and someone says, I've been to a Blue Rocks game, I bet you Mr. Celery is one of the first things that comes up. And uh, I really feel – I feel bad for Rocky Bluewinkle, the team's real mascot, who's really not as well-known as Mr. Celery. Rocky Bluewinkle does all the work. He hustles around with the fans in the stands, goes to community appearances. And this vegetable who just appears out of nowhere in the team 
team scores gets all the attention. So maybe what I want to do next is try to land an interview with Rocky Bluewinkle and see how he feels about playing second fiddle to an anthropomorphic piece of celery. Do you ever think they like switch up who who is Rocky Bluewinkle and who is Mr. Celery on a given night just to keep people's egos in check? Well, I can't speak for Rocky, but definitely it's different people in the uh, celery costume throughout the year. And uh, Andrew Lehman, the team's current GM, said it's interesting to see the different uh, sort of interpretive dance moves and uh, cheering that goes on uh, depending on who is in the costume. But who are we kidding? There is no costume. There's just <laughs> one man. Right, yeah. It's Mr. Celery. He lives in the ballpark, and he only appears when the team scores. About uh, about Rocky Bluewinkle, he's like Mr. Celery is like the the do nothing lead singer of a band, and Rocky Bluewinkle is like the guy who writes all the songs, and he's the one doing all the hard work, and Mr. Celery's just getting all the accolades. That's not fair. It's not fair at all, and I wish I could come up with some really good analogies, and I'm just blanking right now. But, uh, you know, Rocky Bluewinkle is to Mr. Celery as X is to X. Email <laughs> email me some good ones, please. Somebody. <laughs> Benjamin.Hill at MLB.com. Twitter and at Ben's Biz. Uh, Instagram, yeah, the Ben's the, Biz. The Wilmington Blue Rocks, um, they did not rebrand. They redesigned a few years ago back before the 2010 season, and they kind of went away from the – they had a logo that was an angry blue rock with a pickaxe, and they went to basically – all mascot centered their primary logo is rocky blue winkle it's his head mr celery is an alternate logo so that was kind of cool it's like an identity for a team coming out of the identity that it created on the field and on game day where you could have a team name and try to base your logos and, and your merchandise and stuff off of that but it really came from the moose and the and the celery stock and all that stuff that became then the later on graphical and logo identity with the blue rocks which is a pretty neat evolution of that franchise yeah, nothing says minor league baseball like a moose, an angry rock, and a piece of celery. Brandios, by the way. Where, where did the moose come from? Did I did I miss something? His, his full name is Rocky Blue, which is a play on Rocky Bullwinkle. And uh, so I guess that's really the only connection there. So, so they went and, from and like Rocky Bull green. was a was a Rocky Bullwinkle was a, a moose and all, was a. a yeah, an old cartoon character is a moose, and then it's, he also has Rocky in it, and they're the blue rock, so you had this dual connect pop culture right, reference. Right, like Rocky was the squirrel. Right. Oh, was he really? Yeah, it was Rocky and Bullwinkle. Right. So we, we have oh, we so it's from both like, of them together. I, I do right? actually sort of yeah. have kind of an answer to this. Uh, Chris Creamer, who runs a fantastic website, sportslogos.net, does stories sometimes uh, behind the identity of a team, and he actually has that very question why is the mascot of a team called the Blue Rocks a moose in the first place? And Chris Kempel is the one who addresses it and credits Frank Bolton, who was the team's owner and president in 1993. And he says, quote, I don't know how he came up with Rocky Bluewinkle. I do remember him telling me it was after some bad Chinese food. I don't know if that's a joke or not. <laughs> so apparently there's no reason whatsoever. Yeah, and there's no reason for so much of minor league baseball and what goes on, and uh, I think we're all pretty yeah, cool no, with that. It's uh, the most fitting part of it. Um, ben, any any news on the postseason promotion front? We talked last week. Selling tickets in the postseason for minor league teams can sometimes be tough. Kids are back in school. You're not sure when your team is going to be playing games, all that kind of stuff. So postseason promos fly very much under the radar of what a front office is often trying to develop. But have you heard about it offs and, uh, and postseason promos that will be going on across the country? 
I have not heard much, no. I talked about this last week, uh, also just in regards to end of the season and how the promotions aren't as uh, necessarily strong as, or memorable. And uh, you know, a point I neglected to, to mention last week is that so much of a team's game day staff are often college students, so they often leave That's a good you know, around uh, before the last homestand even, let alone uh, the playoffs. Uh, so you're really, operationally speaking, you know, kind of uh, operating with a skeleton crew. And then you combine the postseason with school nights, colder weather, uh, the unpredictability of when your game is actually going to be depending on uh, you know if you advance to the next round and so it's really tough to do uh, I did see the River Dogs uh, Charleston River Dogs are giving away a shirt tonight the Back to the Future style font that says Back to the Playoffs uh, Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs giving away a Trust the Prospects towel that uh, oh, plays off good. of uh, you know the Philadelphia slogan you know Trust the Process and uh, I don't know that's about all I've seen recently uh, I want to correct one thing as well. Paul Caputo is the author of that series at sportslogos.net. Chris Creamer runs the site. It's fantastic if you're a logo nerd. And to supplement your love of Benjamin Hill's work, you can check out some stuff there as well. Ben, what's coming up on the blog? Bensbiz.mlblogs.com. You gave us a little taste, but obviously this stuff will go on long into the offseason. And you made such a concerted effort on staying on top of you were just on a trip doing content from that trip, so it wasn't going into the offseason. So what is that? what doors does that open up for you in the offseason then? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm going to finish up uh, my in-season stuff right now. I'm on Frederick in that particular narrative, uh, which is where I was in early August. And I uh, hope by the end of the month to have all the in-season done. And, uh, you know, when the off-season really kicks in, then I'm going to deal with it. I don't know if any new doors are going to open. We're going to go into a new logo season. I'll do some guest posts. Um, I'm always open for suggestions, too, and maybe having, you know, taking deeper dives into little obscure tangents and uh, having fun with things. So if there's something you'd like to see during the off-season, please get in touch. Um, whether it's something to talk about on the podcast or on the blog or on MILB.com, you really uh, never know. There is a little more leeway. But I'll be doing some batting around columns that I've done in the last couple of years, more of the quote-unquote hard business news. Uh, I'm reading a book right now on Lefty O'Doul, which i probably write up a review on that uh, in the near future. I'm going to try to do an end-of-season crooked numbers, you know, writing about oddities and whatnot. You know, I started that column about six years ago and have sort of had it fall by the wayside as other things have taken its place. But I still always have a very soft spot in my heart for oddities uh, my whole life long. Uh, obsession with oddities so i'm gonna write about some oddities as soon as i get the chance is the next big thing on your calendar the promo seminar yeah in terms of hitting uh, hitting the road again uh, the se- uh, promo seminar is in uh, greenville at the end of the month the 26th to the 28th greenville, uh, greenville south know. carolina greenville with no e not greenville in the appy league correct right right <laughs> greenville south carolina um, home of the drive home of the drive and uh looking forward to that it's always a good opportunity to catch up with people in, in the industry and i'll do a uh, presentation there that people always seem to love because i'm hilarious all the time and um so that'll be good that's at the end of the month so as i said kind of twilight zone right now looking forward to an industry event finishing things up on different fronts the playoffs are still going on uh so you know we'll take care of everything and then uh, transition to the the real off season in about a month or so He's Benjamin Hill. You can find him on Twitter. Ben's Biz is where he is there, and you can find him on the blog, bensbiz.mlblogs.com. And uh, last thing, I guess since the regular season is over, we can sort of ask this question. I know we can't be provided any specifics, but uh, have you gotten some some waves made already on the rebranding season news? Do you know of teams that are coming up with that this year? Um, I've heard a few things off the record that, you know, I really can't uh, divulge right now. you know, obviously, one thing we're going to see is uh, Fayetteville, who aren't start, who aren't going to play. In, it's the Bowie's Creek Astros this season and next season. Uh, but 
we'll see a, a Fayetteville uh, rebranding, I think, sooner than later. Uh, Gwinnett, we will also see. Is Staten Island um, up again this year? Staten Island might do it a second time. I'm not sure on the, the, the most recent developments with that, but they might try again this year. Um, so those are a few that we know. I've heard a few uh, rumblings elsewhere. And then there's some that even if I try to keep my ear to the ground, I'll just be blindsided one day in like January <laughs> or something. It'll be like, wait, what? <laughs> so you really never know. Who knows? The Lynchburg Hillcats could decide they're going to be the Lynchburg Hillcats again. Yeah, they might change the name of the Hillcats for a third time. You never know. You never know in this crazy game we call life or minor league baseball. Hold popular votes to keep the name the same. Thanks, man. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Tyler. You are a wonderful man. (laughs) See you next week. Wrapping up another international edition of the Show Before the Show podcast. Thanks for tuning in wherever you found us. And uh, before we get out of here, MILB.com is the spot for uh, your minor league postseason coverage. And Sam, what are you watching on MILB.tv this week as we roll through the playoffs in the minor leagues? Yeah, I know I got a, uh, or I was talking about the PCL playoffs before. So I'm going to switch the IL playoffs here for MILB.tv, particularly game four of a series between the Durham Bulls and the Indianapolis Indians. Um, that's a best of five series. There's a decent chance it might not even get to game four. It will require a three-game sweep by either side. Feel pretty good that it's not going to be a three-game sweep. Feel free to point me out if I'm wrong on that time. But right now, the game four starters, the way things are lining up uh, for both teams is that the Durham Bulls will be starting Brent Honeywell, top raised prospect, uh, and the Indianapolis Indians will be starting Drew Hutchinson, uh, you know, former big leaguer with the Blue Jays, um, you know, has plenty of major league experience. So him getting a postseason start will be interesting. That would be re- interesting, like regardless. Um, the reason why I'm really going to be clued into this is, as some of you might know, Honeywell was actually suspended for four games uh, by the Durham Bulls um, for what, according to Mark Topkin of the Tampa Bay Times, was discipline, uh, disciplinary reasons. And you know, I, I don't know what those were. I, I can't speak to that. I don't have any inside information on that. Um, but it, it has been very interesting to see Honeywell either like or retweet basically every call-up story um, that MILB sends out. Um, I think he's somebody who's really been itching to get to the majors, and I, I've written this up. I think he's certainly worthy of a look. Um, the Rays are usually you know, pretty laid back on bringing guys up. So, you know, and they're still in the mix in the American league. So looking for help, presumably. Oh, for sure. Um, and you know, as we saw in the futures game, as we've seen in almost every start he's made this year, um, you know, he has one of the most exciting package of pitches in baseball, not only just the minors. Um, so, you know, he came back from that suspension September 3rd through five and a third scoreless innings. Doesn't seem like it's affecting him on the field anyway. Um, so, you know, for a guy who, who seems by you know us our whatever twenty thousand feet view um, seems to be itching for a major league spot, a big postseason start against a former major leaguer. It's going to be on the road in Indianapolis. Uh, that's a big opportunity for him to show them. Like, listen, if he can throw out six zeros in that game too, there really might not be much more else for him to prove unless the Bulls keep going and the Rays decide they want, they prefer his arm there. So uh, that's going to be a very very interesting start. Um, for how he kind of responds to what seems like everything that's going on in that organization. 
I'm going to go to AAA into the Pacific Coast League and actually in two different series, the Colorado Springs Sky Sox and the Memphis Redbirds. One storyline that I'm excited to follow there, Tyler O'Neill, who uh, longtime listeners of the podcast will not be surprised that I picked Tyler O'Neill here. But last year's Southern League MVP in his playoff race and playoff run through the postseason for the AA Jackson Generals, all he did over seven games, a 448 average, three home runs, nine RBIs, a 515 on base percentage, and 828 slugging percentage for a 13.43 OPS so Tyler O'Neill does pretty well in the postseason Um, and also in the PCL the Reno Aces already have the Pacific Coast League most valuable player in Christian Walker they just announced that they uh, have added the Southern League's most valuable player for the playoff push Kevin Crone will join the Reno Aces for the playoffs that was just announced earlier today we're recording this on Wednesday so um, Reno loading up for a run toward the PCL championship and with it maybe a shot at a triple-a title if they can get all the way through the PCL as well so some good stuff uh, across the Pacific Coast League which should be an entertaining couple of series to watch so I think that's it I'll be there on Monday Sam yeah you will we did not make enough like Canadian you know a jokes like Class A advanced or something. EH. No, but obviously. I am very excited about. Uh, I got a shirt from Baseball Canada, the governing body of, of amateur baseball in Canada and the national teams and stuff. And it says baseball, but the A has been replaced by an EH. And I saw it the first day that I was here, and I was like, "Well, I have to get that because if they sell out of that <laughs> shirt, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be furious." So. Well, I mean, um, if I can make yeah. a request, if you could bring back some poutine, I know you're gonna be there for a while, and it. Yeah, you know, that's true. Poutine's probably good for a week, yeah? So if you, like, heard that now, yeah, probably probably, good. I think it probably heats up well, too. It's just potatoes and gravy. Like, it's it's probably good if you reheat it. Yeah, I'm I'm sure I could find it here, but it's it's better if it comes from Thunder Bay. It's got to be authentic, yeah. I know it's more of a Quebec thing, but I'm not going to Quebec, people, so lay off me. I'm going to get my poutine here. Next week's podcast will just be me, like, eating through the poutine. Oh, yeah. What are your thoughts on the postseason? We'll just do a a foods of baseball, of international baseball podcast. It'll be pretty good. That would be awesome. (laughs) So tune into the minor league baseball postseason for the next couple of weeks at MILB.TV. And that will do it for this week's edition of the show before the show podcast in person next week, headed to New York City directly from uh, from Canada to meet my new nephew. So that's quite exciting. And I'll also see Sam. So doubly exciting. I am I am not your new nephew. <laughs> no, not. Sam is not my nephew. That's true. There has not been a legal out. proceeding that makes me. We should me clarify. Know. That is a very good point. Uh, he's Sam Dykstra. I'm Tyler Vaughn. We'll talk to you next week.